James chapter 3, sin and judgment. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. This chapter has much to say about sin and judgment. What we find in most churches, most of the time in most churches, is a disdain to contemplate the nature of sin, both in one's own life and in the life of others. And there is also an aversion or disdain to understand the judgment of God. Most of the time, people do not consider, they don't have conviction, they don't believe in the day of judgment and the coming judgment of God upon all the wicked who are unrepentant. This is typical. Now, this sin of denigrating, avoiding, neglecting, and even undermining sin and judgment is something that has happened since the beginning of time. It's not new to our generation. It's not new to the people who claim to be the people of God. This actually originated in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. They received the grace of God in vain. They were amply supplied, abundantly supplied with all things to enjoy in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin in the world. They were newly created. The woman was brought to the man. God conducted the first marriage and the first marital covenant. 
That was what God established in a wonderful, lush, beautiful, abundant garden. That's the grace of God. But Adam and Eve, without any sin within them, because sin had not happened yet, they committed the first sins, or as we say, the original sin. And from that time on, it went into degeneration. Sin brought about death, Romans 5.12. But what did Adam and Eve do? They received the grace of God in vain. They spited the goodness of God. They said to themselves, they had to think this way before they sinned. Yes, God has given us grace, but we're going to use this grace for our freedom, our free will, to do what we want, as the serpent Satan enticed them to do. So they did. They presumed upon the love and grace of God, thinking, well, God's not going to judge us. Nothing's going to happen. Everything will be fine. We'll partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They presumed upon the grace of God and suffered for it. And they, just as we, did so in the very beginning because we were in them and they represented us, all of us. What they did, we did. But after that time, when God chose to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He adopted them as his son. He showered grace upon them, love upon them. He granted them deliverance from severe bondage in Egypt and gave them a wonderful, beautiful, fertile land of Canaan. He granted that to them. But he also granted his word to them by grace. He granted the... Christ to be born of that nation, and so many other blessings. But what did Israel do throughout its history? They presumed upon the grace of God. They received the grace of God in vain. By the way, we are citing constantly 2 Corinthians 6.1, receiving the grace of God in vain. Israel received the grace of God in vain. They thought... Well, God delivered us from Egypt, so that means that we can live as we please. We can commit idolatry. We can commit immorality. We can live as we want. And God loves us anyways. Nothing's going to happen to us. This was the persistent, evil, sinful thought of the children of Israel throughout their history. And that evil thought has persisted even after the time of the apostles. It was during the time of the apostles. That's why in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, he says, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Since the time of the apostles, it's been happening. Since their time, a man in the second century, 50 to 100 years after the apostles, a man named Marcion, Marcion of a city, a port city named Sinope, His father was a Christian and a deacon in the church there. But he ended up being an arch-heretic. And what did he preach? He preached that the God of the New Testament is a different God than the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is full of love and grace. Full of love and grace, but not in the Old Testament. There's no love and grace. There's only hatred. There's anger. There's righteousness. There's evil that the God does in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you can be rest assured, we have a God of love and grace. And the Christians of his time resisted and refuted him. They denounced him as preaching a false gospel. What was in the post-apostolic period called Marcionism is today not called that, It's usually called dispensationalism. It's called antinomianism against law. It is called libertarianism or libertinism. The people who promote it today in many churches across all denominations, even reformed denominations, many reformed denominations, what do they do? They say, we can live as we we please, The grace of God will cover all of our sins, so it doesn't matter how we live. After we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we can live as we please. Jesus died for us. Jesus loves us. So all is well and good. 
We can live in sin, whatever sin you want, and then everything will be fine on the day of judgment because Jesus died for us. This mentality started without the sin of Adam and Eve. They were sinless when they were first created. It entered their mind through Satan. And since the time of Adam and Eve and their first sin, because of the incitement and enticement of Satan, it continues today. And it will always continue. That's why when we study the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, all of these major events occurred. Still, in the New Testament, there is a strong denunciation of sin so that we all, in truth, in sincerity, in genuine true faith, prepare ourselves for the day of judgment. That's throughout the New Testament. There are numerous examples from Acts chapter 2 until Revelation chapter 22. It's all throughout. That's why we have undertaken this study. We now find ourselves in James 3. Does the Bible say a lot about sin and judgment in the New Testament from Acts 2 to Revelation 22? Yes, indeed. And we better know it. If we do not know it, we will be unprepared to meet the Lord on the day of judgment. And this is the time to be prepared. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, today. That's why we must always have confidence and certainty that we are handling the Word of God accurately and obeying it as God expects us to obey. This is not legalism. This is not pharisaicalism. This is not works salvation. This is not works righteousness. This is thoroughly the true biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who disdain this, those who reject what has just been said, they are the ones who are lawless. They are the ones who are the legalists. That is following the traditions of men, not the traditions of God through his servants, the prophets, and his holy apostles. They are the ones who are pharisaical because they pretend to know the Bible, they pretend to follow the Bible, they pretend to believe in the Bible, but they want nothing to do with the Bible in truth in their daily life. James reminds us that we cannot be this way. Last time, we saw that faith without works is dead. What is he saying? He's saying there must be evidence. If we have true faith, it must show itself by our works, our obedience, by fruit. True faith produces true fruit. James chapter 1, he exhorted us to seek for the wisdom of God. Not our wisdom, but the heavenly wisdom descending from above. And God gives to all generously and without reproach when they are seeking His wisdom, heavenly wisdom, not earthly. He returns to that subject here in chapter 3. And chapter 3 may be broken up into two parts. Verses 1 to 12, He denounces, chides, scolds us for the use of our tongue. Why? Because... When we use our tongue, we are touting, spouting our own wisdom. And he's telling us we better be very careful when we open our mouths. We better know what we're talking about when we open our mouths. Because there will be a stricter judgment. He says so in verse 1. He calls it stricter judgment. It's there in the text, in the English text, in the Greek text. Stricter judgment. It's not the current preacher making up the word. It's right there in verse 1. Stricter judgment. He's warning us like this. 
that we, whenever we open our mouths, cannot have, should not speak our own wisdom. This should produce much solemnity and sobriety in our thinking and in our speech. Secondly, verses 13 to 18, he tells us and compares and contrasts the wisdom from above with the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above with the wisdom from below. When we, with the use of our tongue, are employing and explaining wisdom from below, this is destructive. This deserves the wrath and judgment of God. But when we, in the new man with the new heart, are pursuing heavenly wisdom, then that will produce good fruit. It'll produce much good fruit, fruit that endures to eternal life. This is what he wants us to desire, to pursue. The wisdom that comes from above, which comes in two ways. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grant to us the wisdom of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grant to us the wisdom of God. That's all. That's what he's teaching here in our chapter. Therefore, let's pay careful attention to the use of our mouth, the use of our tongue. However, whatever analogy and comparisons to our tongue he uses here, let us take these to heart and be very sober before we ever dare, ever deign, ever decide to say something that we think is right, we think is true, that we think that God accepts or God has taught in his holy word. Let's first have this kind of reserved, careful, contemplative, accurate understanding of his word before we ever speak. That's verses 1 to 12. Verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. He is dissuading the many people who want to be teachers of the Bible. Yes, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. But that is not to be assigned as commonly as people think. Not just any man or any woman can say, I'm called to the ministry, I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a preacher, I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to be a priest, I'm going to be a priestess, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophetess. That should not be something anybody says quickly, prematurely, rashly. It should be with very much caution, because when we say it rashly, too quickly, He's warning us here that we shall incur a stricter judgment. But it's not just those who aspire to the office of overseer or pastor, teacher. This is a warning for everyone who dares to say he knows what the scripture says. He knows what's right. He knows what's true. He knows what God thinks. Whoever would dare to do so better be very, very careful that he is correct. When one is flippant, when one is very rash, then we should observe and take caution. We should always ask, what does the scripture say? When somebody speaks fast, somebody speaks up and starts to explain his wisdom to us, immediately we must ask, what does the scripture say? 
Ask the speaker, what does the scripture say? Because usually they don't cite scripture. They're just blabbering what's ever on their mind. Whoever is going to teach, and there are many, we teach unbelievers when we evangelize. So what are we telling unbelievers when we evangelize? Are we smothering them with a lot of cotton candy in the presentation of the gospel to unbelievers? Lots of sugar, lots of love and grace. What are we doing when we preach? Are we preaching the true grace of God or a false grace to to them? That's when we evangelize. How about when we're talking to friends and co-workers? What about in the family? What are we teaching one another in our families? Whatever we are teaching, it must be founded on the holy, righteous, pure word of God. Not maybe, but certainly. Not I guess, I think, I think I heard, I think I know, I guess I know. It's somewhere in the Bible, I just don't know where it is. When people preface their wisdom with statements like that, that is a warning. And they need to be told, where is it? Otherwise, there's no point talking anymore. If you don't know where it is, and you cannot read it in context and explain it accurately in context, I don't want to hear it. And we should tell them that there is a stricter judgment, a stricter, more strict judgment, because those who know more will be judged on the knowledge they have. Therefore, the judgment will be more severe or more strict when that knowledge is not really believed by the one who has the knowledge and not obeyed by the one who has that knowledge. We are to grow in knowledge, but knowledge coupled with faith and obedience. When those are lacking, that day of judgment is going to be very, very severe. To see one example of this, Mark chapter 12, Mark 12, 38 to 40. Mark 12, 38. This is at the end of the chapter. Close to the end of the chapter. Mark 12, 38. 12, 38. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They are the ones who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He says the scribes, and who are the scribes? The scribes are the ones who transcribe the manuscripts of the Bible from generation to generation. They are the ones, therefore, who would be most familiar with the text of the Bible to explain to others and to teach the others. The scribes of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the main teachers of the people in the nation of Israel. Therefore, if they are the ones who are most familiar with the text of Scripture, though inaccurately, they are familiar with it, and if they misapply it, they don't believe what it's actually saying, they miss the main point, that is, they miss Christ in the Scriptures, as he said in John 5. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. John 5, 39 to 47, he explains that sin. But here in Mark, he's saying, these will receive greater condemnation. This is a similar statement to James in James 3, 1. Those who have the knowledge, those who are teaching, those who would presume to tell somebody else that it's a sin or not a sin, or this is the way God is, Or God loves you just as you are. He takes you just as you are and leaves you just as you are. So no repentance, 
No holiness, no godliness, no fruit, no maturity. No, 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 not, that would be legalism, they say. No, that is satanic. That's demonism, what they're teaching. Because Satan is the one who put that first thought into the minds of Adam and Eve in the garden. There will be a stricter judgment, just as there will be an even more strict judgment for Satan and the demons on the day of judgment. Verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Verse 2 preempts the false doctrine of perfectionism, sinless perfection. Among those who believe in free will theology, this is a common doctrine. John and Charles Wesley of the Methodists who founded Methodism in the 1700s. From them came the Nazarenes. From them came the Church of Christ and Pentecostalism. From that root, what did they believe? Well, once we are Christians, upon conversion or some point later after conversion, we are sinless. We're perfect. So don't tell me how to use my mouth. Don't tell me how to use my tongue because I never sin with my tongue. Yet James says that is false. He says we all stumble in many ways. And the we all, notice verses 1 and 2 and 3, he says we, we, we. He's including himself as an apostle. We all stumble in many ways. This means that this is a lifelong pursuit until our last breath that we watch what we say. Because what we say might be earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. And this is a temptation for every one of us every day. That's why he says we all stumble in many ways. The opposite, or when he says we all stumble in many ways, he's saying... We strive for holiness, but we're going to stumble many times. Verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This is easy to prove in reference to John and Charles Wesley in the 1700s. When they claimed to be perfect, all we have to do is after they make the claim, check out their writings check out their commentaries, check out their songs, because Charles Wesley was a prolific composer of songs, Christian songs, called hymns. He was. All we have to do is see whether they sinned with their mouth by putting what they were saying or thinking in print. And that's easy to prove. They distort the Bible in many ways after they make the claim to be perfect. They composed Christian songs that are devoid of the righteousness and holiness of God. Judgment upon the wicked. Threats of punishment. The Psalms have that throughout. But not the songs of the Wesleys and everyone since then. So they are sinning, though they're claiming to be sinless. It's utter hypocrisy. We are not perfect, able to bridle the whole body. No. Our eyes, our mouths, our ears, our hands, our feet, we use our bodies in sinful ways daily. And this is the resistance, this is the wisdom that we should not be pursuing. We must reject that wisdom. Now, the many analogies from verses 3 to 12. He tells us many examples, many ways in which our mouths are. Verse 3, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. This is amazing. When the bits 
are put on the horse's head and specifically on the mouth. The horse rider is able to guide and direct the horse the way he wants the horse to turn. Turn to the right, turn to the left, go straight, go fast, stop. He's able to direct the horse with a small instrument on the horse's mouth. He's able to do so, to direct the whole body, where the whole body of the horse goes, and therefore the horseman is directed or carried to where he is directing the horse. Is that not amazing? That a small piece, a bit on the horse's mouth, can control the whole horse? Also amazing, verse 4. Maybe even more amazing is verse 4. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Huge, massive ships. Yes, they had them in ancient days. It wasn't, it's false to believe that seafaring and shipbuilding only existed in the time of the Vikings and later in the medieval period. No, that's false. The people who say that are lying to us. Shipbuilding existed for millennia before that. Just as Peter, excuse me, James is speaking of that right here in verse 4. Huge ships are controlled by a very small rudder. Though the mighty waves and the mighty winds are battering the ship here and there, still the pilot is able to direct the ship by a very small rudder under the ship in the ocean. That should be astonishing to us. How in the world can that happen? But it does happen. It happens all the time. It's happened throughout the millennia. Now the comparison, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Is the tongue not a small part of our body? The tongue is smaller than our mouths because it's in the mouth. It's smaller than our head because it's in the head. The tongue is smaller than our arms, smaller than our legs, smaller than our torso, right? The tongue is small compared to many other parts of the body. But how is it that such a small part of our bodies is able to boast of great things. Why is it hard for a human to beat the tongue into submission? Why is it? It's the nature of sin. It boasts of great things. Yes, this is, when he says boasts of great things, he's speaking of Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. It makes a claim to wisdom, but it's empty and it's coming from Satan. This is 3.15. Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. Then, verse 5. More comparisons. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. What's he mean there? All that is necessary is in a dry forest for someone, or lightning even, to ignite a fire, and the fire is contained, it's in a small place, it starts small, but then it spreads rapidly and burns down a whole forest. Verse 6. That's the destructive nature of it. And so, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. Why is he talking about fire in a forest? Because the tongue is the fire in our life. It's very small. It's able to ignite and say something or do something. 
but it wreaks destruction everywhere it is heard. Everywhere. And these days it's very easy to do so. Online, on the, in the internet. Many people can hear something that is false, destructive, sinful. The, verse 6, the tongue is not only a fire that sets the world on fire, the, it is the very world of iniquity. It's the world of iniquity. That is, a world of sin, a world of transgression, a world of trespasses, a, a world of hostility against the holiness of God is right here in this little, tiny, bodily part. It's full of it. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue, it's not only defiling itself, it's defiling the whole person. The whole person is the one who is going to be setting ablaze whatever it is attempting to destroy. The whole person is. And this goes on throughout life. But who is actually igniting the fire? Or where is the source of the fire? He says it's set on fire by hell. He's referring to hellish, satanic sources of what the tongue says with its human wisdom. People don't want to acknowledge this part. They'll say, no, it's just my personality. It's just my upbringing. It's just the way I was raised. It's just what my father taught me. It's just what my mother taught me. It's all I know. So why are you blaming it if it's just what all I know? Well, then don't speak it. And biblically speaking, your upbringing, personality, and anything else, the problems of life, your anxieties, are no justification for the sins that come out of the mouth. The Bible does not ever justify one's upbringing or personality or harsh or difficult experiences, anxieties, worries of life as a justification for the mouth to sin. It says it's set on fire by hell. Seven. The wild tongue. The wild tongue Starts in verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. This we know. There are some private owners of wild animals. Some private organizations. They have tamed, controlled wild animals. We have zoos where they are relatively tame compared to the way they would be in the wild, relatively speaking. Not that we can go into a cage with a lion in the zoo. We're not saying that. But relative to their normal, natural, wild, wilderness environment, they have been tamed. In some places also, you can actually touch these wild animals under supervision. How is it that the human race can tame the animals which are, according to 2 Peter 2.12 and Jude, verse 10, they are wild, unreasoning animals. The animals are wild and unreasoning. Then why can't humans reason with each other? and use their reason, their rational capabilities, for self-control, to pursue heavenly wisdom. They cannot because their tongue is set on fire 
by hell. That's why it is so difficult. Eight. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is untamable. It's wild. And no, when he says no man can tame it, he means fully tame it, 100% until the day he dies. So that he never says anything wrong, never speaks his own wisdom, never sins with his own tongue. He says that in that way, it is untamable. It's a restless evil. It's always looking to do evil, to say evil. It's full of deadly poison. This is similar to a snake, a poisonous snake. A poisonous snake, when it uses its tongue, it is full of deadly poison. The poisonous snake in the Garden of Eden, the serpent of old, Satan and the devil, the dragon, what he had, he infected, he bit, spiritually speaking, he bit Adam and Eve. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They received the poison from the serpent. Because the serpent spoke it, they received the deadly poison. And they died. This is repeated throughout history among all mankind. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Within a Christian context, within a church context, the same tongue is also blessing the Lord, blessing the Father, but at the same time, it is pronouncing curses on men who have been made in the likeness of God. Why is that same tongue doing both? Because within us, we have the old man and the new man. And the old man, the old nature, the flesh, rises up and often consumes us, directs us, controls us, and it has earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. But the old nature should not be controlling us, he says, according to this passage. It does do so, but it should not do so. We should overcome it. These things ought not to be this way, my brethren. Don't say, well, everybody's got sin, we're all working on it, as excuses not to do anything. He says it ought not to be this way. Yes, it is this way, but he's not saying, keep it that way. He's saying, it is this way, but we should be ashamed that it is this way and reject that way. Don't let the same tongue bless and curse. Verse 11. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? What's the answer? No. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? No. Or a vine produce figs? No. Neither can salt water produce fresh water. Correct. So what kind of fruit is coming forth? What is it? Remember, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Therefore, we can know what's in a person's heart by what his mouth speaks. If we see a tree, we become very 
convinced or certain of the kind of tree it is by the fruit it produces. If we see figs on a tree, we call it a fig tree. We don't call it a grapevine. We call it a fig tree. We don't call it an apple tree. We call it a fig tree and so forth. That's what he's talking about here. Therefore, whatever fruit that comes forth must be good fruit and showing what's really inside of us. The tongue. Now, wisdom. Where should the wisdom, or where should the tongue receive its wisdom? Where should the tongue be seeking to understand what is true wisdom? What is the source of true wisdom? Is it in the tongue? Is it within the man, in the inner man? Or is it from without the man, outside the man? The answer is, it's outside. It must descend from heaven to the earth. And it does. How? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to give to us the wisdom of God. This is his point here, 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Many claim to be wise and understanding. But how is that claim going to be verified? How is the claim going to be justified? How is that claim to be wise and understanding? How is it going to be proven? He says in 13, let him show. He says, show it. Prove it. Demonstrate it. Show by his good behavior. There we have people who say, it doesn't matter what we do. Doesn't matter how we live. They are liars. He says, let him show by his good behavior. Good behavior. It doesn't mean good, secret, invisible values on the inside. He's talking about what we can see, what is clear, what our eyes can observe, the evidence, the good behavior, his deeds, not his thoughts, not his heart. He says his deeds, good behavior, his deeds. Therefore, we can know if he's got true wisdom, by the good behavior of his deeds. In the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom and gentleness go together. He says the gentleness of wisdom. He's been showing this and proving this since chapter 1, verse 19. Or actually, we might say chapter 1, verse 2. He's been teaching us all the way up to 3, verse 12. What is this gentleness of wisdom? For those who distort this, they might say gentleness of wisdom means you cannot use strong, firm words. You cannot call anybody a fool. Well, he called everybody a fool in chapter 2, verse 20. You foolish fellow. You cannot accuse somebody of being double-minded. Well, he did so in chapter 1, verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the gentleness of wisdom, falsely applied, they say that you cannot use names, accusing people of being adulteresses, spiritual adulteresses. But he did so in chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses. That's another one. We can never preface a direct speech to anyone by saying, you, you liar, you fool. That's unloving. That's, not, that's ungentle. But not according to the definition that James gives. He says here, the gentleness of wisdom. He's preaching the gentleness of wisdom. At the same time, he's identifying the sin of the people as it really is. He's a plain spoken man. 
You adulteresses, you foolish fellow, you double-minded man. 4.8. You sinners. They go together. They're not mutually exclusive. Not according to James, unless we want to say James is a hypocrite and so ignorant that he doesn't realize he's contradicting himself. But we won't go there. Unbelievers go there. Skeptics of Scripture go there, but we won't go there because we believe he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, gentleness of wisdom is according to the definition of the Spirit of God in the book of James, as well as other Scriptures. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Bitter jealousy toward whom? Toward one another. Selfish ambition. I think, I want, my view, my opinion. Nobody listens to me. Why aren't you listening to me? Do what I think. Here's my wisdom. Nobody asked me about it. When people are speaking like that, that is selfish ambition in your heart. Look there. We can know that selfish ambition is in the heart because of what comes out, what the fruit is, what the deeds are. He says, selfish ambition in your heart. He's not saying it merely to write it. He's saying it so that we can know how to discern when somebody has selfish ambition in the heart. When people say, well, you can't know what's in my heart. Well, he just told us in verse 14, we can know what's in the heart. We can tell that you have selfish ambition in your heart when you contradict the wisdom he's writing here. And do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This too. When people speak, they pretend to be humble. But the moment they, even if they are soft-spoken, if they contradict Scripture, they are arrogant. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 also says that. When we exceed what is written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, we are arrogant one against another. So the true humble man is the one who is submitting to the wisdom of Scripture, not his own wisdom. His own wisdom is born of arrogance. Also, he's a liar. He lies against the truth. That which contradicts Holy Scripture is a lie, period. Romans 3, 4, let God be found true, though every man a liar. Therefore, whatever the Word of God says, that's what we should believe. And whoever contradicts it, whoever undermines it, he is a liar and he's lying against the truth. Just as Satan did in the Garden of Eden, he lied against the truth. Those who follow him are lying against the truth. And they are following him whether they admit it or not. They follow him when they lie against the truth. Verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. The wisdom that comes from above is contained in the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grant to us the wisdom of God. But the wisdom that contradicts the wisdom from above, from God above, is earthly. It's of the earth or of the world. It's natural. That is, it's coming out of the flesh, the carnal man, the old man. And it's demonic. That is, its origination is Satan and his demons. Just like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 teaches, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three enemies 
of the truth of God from heaven, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. Now, that's a severe charge. It's a very strong charge. And most of the time, when people spout and tout their own wisdom, they don't want to be called out on it as having earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. But that's what it is. 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Back to jealousy and selfish ambition. When these twin sins are present, what do these twin sins produce? Disorder and every evil thing. There's disharmony. There's disagreement. There's conflict, schisms, divisions, fighting going on. The fight that's happening, the conflict that's happening, the disorder is not because of the truth. The truth is never blamed for disorder. The sinful disorder is always blamed on the sins of those who are practicing jealousy and selfish ambition. The selfish ambition is not founded on Scripture. nor jealousy. 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The wisdom from above. Remember, he's using this phrase from above. He first used it from above in 117, where he says, every good thing bestowed 117, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That is the origin of all good, true, pure wisdom, coming down from our Heavenly Father, the Father of lights, from heaven. If it does not come from heaven... It's earthly, natural, demonic. That's why we must be preoccupied with always knowing, is this wisdom that I'm hearing, is it coming from above, from the Father? Or is it coming from below? Earthly, natural, demonic. What is its source? What is the origination of it? That's what we should ask. He says, pure. That means that there's nothing impure. There are no defects. We cannot say God's 99% right and I'm 1% right or 50-50. He's speaking of pure as the scripture says, like pure gold or pure silver refined in a furnace seven times, Psalm 12. That's the sense in which he means pure. That means that it is entirely, wholly, fully valuable. Nothing is to be rejected. It's peaceable. It produces true peace. Like it says in verse 18. It's sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above produces peace. True peace, not false peace, not fake peace, but true peace. Peace between men and God and peace between men. It's gentle, as he said in verse 13. The wisdom of the world is ungentle. It is harsh. It is cruel. It's unrelenting, but not the wisdom of God. The flesh may hate it, but that's the flesh. But just because the flesh hates the wisdom of God doesn't mean the wisdom of God is ungentle. The flesh is the problem, not the wisdom of God, which is gentle. It's reasonable. Reasonable. 
That's why irrationality, madness, a crazy man, a madman who's out of his mind, when he is speaking and you can tell he's not describing things according to reality. His words do not comport with reality. When that's happening, the reality of an actual incident, but especially the reality of Scripture, when he's spouting and touting things that do not conform to Scripture, but actually undermine Scripture, then he is unreasonable. He's not using his mind right. He's out of his mind. All sin, all sin has in its nature madness. All sin that we commit, we commit in a moment of personal madness, personal insanity. But not God's wisdom, it's reasonable. It's sober. It's also full of mercy. God's wisdom is full of mercy. The world wants mercy. The world speaks of it. But true mercy is pursuing the wisdom of God. For example, the world wants mercy for the criminal, but it's always preoccupied with mercy for the criminal But what about the innocent people that were harmed by the criminal? Nobody is talking about mercy for them. Justice for them. What about their mercy? This is how it's upside down. God's wisdom presents true mercy, both for the innocent, the victim, but also even for the criminal upon repentance. See, the world and the world inside the church offers automatic forgiveness without repentance. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says, if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Luke 17, 3 to 4. If he repents, forgive him. If And many other places. It's also full of good fruits. There shouldn't be any doubt. When we have lots of figs on the tree, then we can clearly say, that's a fig tree. It's wonderful. But if there are no fruits there, then there's something wrong. But here he says, God's wisdom produces good fruits. Unwavering. Remember in 1.8 and 4.8, he warned us against being a double-minded man, unstable in all our ways. Tossed here and there by waves, back and forth, the winds, the waves. We don't know what to believe. We're always confused. We don't know what's right. He says God's wisdom produces unwavering characteristics without hypocrisy. They say, people say, to correct this doctrine, they'll say, we can't judge one another. You're not supposed to judge anybody. But when they say that, They are correcting us, so they're judging us. Are they not? When they're trying to put a stop to our assessment of somebody else, whether one is a believer or not, whether one's doctrine or practice is in accordance with Scripture or not, they say, you're not supposed to judge. Why are you judging? Well, when they are trying to stop us, are they not judging us? Yes, they are judging us. So they're hypocrites. Hypocrites. But God's wisdom is without hypocrisy. And finally, verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is 
righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The seed whose fruit is righteousness. When the seed is planted, the fruit that comes forth is righteousness. But how is it sown? How is it scattered or planted in the ground, in the soil? It is sown in peace. Sow the seed in peace, and then the seed will be implanted, and its fruit that comes up will be righteousness. How? By those who make peace. This is Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. The peacemakers are blessed because what they sow in peace, they are making peace, producing righteousness. That's true wisdom. The earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, on the other hand, produces wickedness and produces warfare, contention, quarreling, but not God's peace. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.